Our teaching for this morning will come from the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1, and we'll look at verses 3 through 11. This is God's Word. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of His divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So if you've been with us the last few weeks, you'll know that we've been taking a a break from our uh, main series this year. We've been looking at the book of Genesis and the book of Romans, and we have spent the month of September uh, revisiting our vision as a church, and we'll pick up with Romans next week, but I want to spend one more week uh, looking at uh, one other aspect of our, our vision as a church, and if you can flip open to the front cover of your worship folder, you'll see there our vision laid out. And we've been looking at uh, the four uh, core values that we have here at Red Mountain uh, this, this month. And today, I want to look at our goals or our objectives that are listed there at the bottom. And as I've said each week, our vision attempts to answer key questions. So that brief statement at the beginning, the vision statement there, is really meant to answer the question, why are we here? And our core values are really meant to answer the question, who are we? What are those biblical characteristics and convictions that most define who we are that we would be willing to suffer for? And then our goals there really describe and answer the question, how, how will we do ministry? How will we go about pursuing this vision? And so you'll see there that our four goals really are Uh, connecting people to God, connecting people to one another. Uh, Let me give you a little bit of a a window in. Connecting people to God is, think in terms of worship and evangelism. Uh, Connecting people to one another is the idea of building community. Connecting people to the city is the the idea of the church's work of mercy and justice in the city, in our neighborhoods. Connecting people to the culture you can think that of that in terms of faith and work. Um, how does your work connect with what God is doing in the world? Whether you spend your days at home or whether you spend your days in the marketplace. And I want you to think about these four goals as the, as the basic directions of the Christian life. The four basic directions of the Christian life. That connecting people to God really describes our common life together is living towards God. 
Uh, Connecting people to one another really describes uh, living towards those who are in the church. Uh, Connecting people to the city describes uh, our living towards those outside the church. And connecting people to the culture really describes our common life of living towards the culture and society in which we live. The four basic directions of the Christian life. And how I'd like you to think about these is in two ways. They're, on the one hand, they are diagnostic. What do I mean? These four goals help us to reflect on where we've come from and ask the question, how are we doing? So they're diagnostic, but they're also directional. They help give us direction as we move into the future. Where do we need to, uh, to grow and to learn and to, and to improve? And so... These goals, I think, they get us to ask a question that I think is perhaps, especially for us at Red Mountain, and I will say for me as a minister, it's uncomfortable. And it's the question of, are we successful? Or perhaps I think a better and more biblical way to answer it is, or to ask the question is, is our ministry fruitful? Are we actually accomplishing anything? Is this church, our, our individual lives, fruitful? Is it successful according to how God would define that? And so what I want to do this morning is I want to dwell on this idea of ministry fruitfulness from this passage from Second Peter. And we're going to look at, at four things that Peter describes here. I hope some of you are are noticing that I've gone from three-point sermons only to sometimes two. I think this is the first four, and not only three. I'm actually kind of encouraged by that, but um, at any rate, we've got these four things. The foundation for fruitfulness, verses 1 to 4. The character of fruitfulness, verses 5 to 7. The key to fruitfulness, verses 8 and 9. And then lastly, the hope of fruitfulness, verses 10 to 11. So first, let's look at the foundation of fruitfulness. Look here in uh, verses 3 and 4. His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, that's a, that's a mouthful. But here's the basic point. Peter is telling us that God has given us everything we need to live life the side of heaven. And not just to live life, but to flourish, to be fruitful. That in the gospel, we have absolutely everything we need. Now, what is it that he has given us? What are these, what we could call gospel blessings? Now, again, Peter here is, he's not uh, digging down into all kinds of details. He's giving us a big picture. And what we see here is he gives us all we need to navigate life. He gives us all that we need to find comfort. 
And he gives us all that we need to experience freedom. When he says here that he has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That is, how are we supposed to do this thing called life? It's not easy. It's not straightforward. There's all kinds of gray and vague and complexity. That requires wisdom and discernment. There's no one-size-fits-all for this. Every day we wake up with decisions to make, most of which, my guess is, we're fraught with anxiety over because we don't know what to do. And here we're being told that in the gospel, we are given everything we need for precisely those moments. But also, the comfort. Listen to what he says, verse 4. He has given to us his precious and very great promises. His precious and very great promises. God keeps his word. It's why we read for our call to worship this morning. God will never leave you. He will never forsake you. All of God's promises find their yes in Jesus. And they are for you and they are a gift to build your life on. When you find yourself wobbling and fragile and weak, they're there for you to lean on. But also, to experience freedom, he says here in verse 4, to be in Jesus means that you've escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, it would be easy to sort of run past that and, and when he says in the world, to kind of have this, this sense of, man, yeah, there's all this stuff out there. But then he says sinful desire. Sinful desire. That means those desires that are resident in your heart and your life that wreak havoc in you and in your relationships and in your decisions, in your workplace. Those things that though maybe good in themselves, they captivate you, they own you, they enslave you. And here we are being told the foundation for fruitfulness really comes in knowing the freedom of the gospel. There is freedom from those desires that enslave you. And in fact, what we're noticing here that the foundation for fruitfulness does not begin with us. It begins with God. And it's why we read from John 15 earlier, Peter's just reflecting on what he's heard from Jesus. In John 15, when Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. This is the foundation for fruitfulness. But here's a question for us. If these gospel blessings are a gift, what, what do you do with them? What do, they, what do they look like? So let's look at the character of, of fruitfulness here in verses 5 to 7. I want you to see right away in verse 5. Notice what Peter says. For this very reason. Well, what reason? All the reasons we just looked at in verses 3 to 4. Again and again, you've got to learn to see this when you read the Bible. God never calls you to do something without already showing you and telling you what he's done for you. God never, ever calls you to do something 
as a test to see if he will give you his blessings. God always gives you the good news first and then calls you to live in light of it. That is fundamental to to Christian uh, theology, to the Christian life, to what the Bible teaches. So for this very reason, now Peter says, what do you do? What does fruitfulness look like? Notice what he says, verse 5. It takes effort. Make every effort. This is not a hobby. This is not a pastime. This is not when it feels good or exciting or compelling. He's saying, make every possible effort in your life. Every possible effort. In light of these good news, of this good news, of these blessings... To supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. So first, it takes effort. And there are versions of Christianity that would tell you, uh, let go and let God. Uh, Some are even a little bit more subtle, subtle, and you might even think of me uh, saying this later, which is why I want to say it now, just really living the Christian life is just you have to believe the gospel more. If that's all we say, that's actually not what the Bible says. Believing and effort go together. It takes effort. But secondly, notice it has very, very clear, uh, the character of fruitfulness has very clear qualities or characteristics or traits that he lists here. And commentators discuss uh, almost ad nauseum. Uh, what, what are the details that Peter's getting into with each of these characteristics? Or how do they all relate together? And it's often the case when lists like this show up, the writer's not trying necessarily to um, be super specific. But rather is listing in general, but this is what it looks like for grace to take hold in your life and to become visible and manifest. But it is interesting and important, I think, to notice that when Peter says here to make every effort to add these things, to supplement your faith, it begins with faith and it ends with love. And everything in between is faith maturing and growing in order that it would demonstrate the kind of love that you've already received in Jesus. So it takes effort. It begins with faith. It ends with love. It has these very visible qualities. But then, last, notice in verse 8, the very beginning, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, it's a process. The character of faithfulness, what it's really like, this doesn't happen overnight. It's a process that really encompasses your entire life from now until Jesus comes back. And therefore, what what does it take? It takes perseverance. It's steadfastness, self-control, the very things he lists here. It takes admitting when I fail. It takes turning back to Jesus and asking for forgiveness yet again, and for help yet again, to make every effort. 
And I want to keep reiterating that this is about abiding in Jesus. What's it look like to abide in Jesus? Well, here you go. Verses 5 to 7. It's very practical, very straightforward. Now, these are fruits of grace, if you want to think of it like that, in verses 5 to 7. This is what fruitfulness looks like in our individual lives, but also in our common life together. But there's a question for us. Why, though, does this fruitfulness seem so elusive? And that brings us to the key to fruitfulness here in verses 8 through 9. And the key to this fruitfulness really comes because uh, Peter asks two very important questions for us. First of all, he answers the question, why do we need to grow? Why is fruitfulness so important? Why is it not optional in the Christian life? Look in verse 8. Because they keep you from becoming ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what he's saying. Especially when he says here, ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of Jesus. Think about that for a moment. That word knowledge. What Peter is saying is that to know Jesus is not just informational. It's transformational. And I think this is, I would be the first to admit, I fall into this trap. I think our whole denomination falls into this trap. There are whole swaths of Christianity that fall into this trap. Of by default thinking Christianity is about only right thinking and right doctrine. And it is. Hear me say that. But it's not only that. To know Jesus is to be transformed from the inside out. Why is that so important? Because if that's not happening, we become ineffective and unfruitful. And we, in fact, begin to live in ways that are contrary to what Jesus actually came to do and bring about in your lives. But secondly, not only why do we need to grow, but why don't we grow? Have you ever asked that question or felt that? Like, man, I just feel like I'm not growing. I'm not changing. I keep doing the same things over and over. Is this Jesus thing really real? Is it really true? Does it really work? Why don't we grow? And before we look at the answer to that question that he gives, I want you to think for a minute. How have you tried to answer this question? When you find yourself not growing, or areas in your life in which you would like to grow in, what do you tend to do? What do we tend to do? Well, let me just give you some some ideas to think of. Man, you need to read this book. If you read this book, it'll, it'll change your life. No, it won't. How many times have you done that? I can't tell you how many times I've said that. Maybe I just, if I had a more consistent quiet time, if I had a better devotional life. Uh, what if I had a better group of friends that, you know, had courage enough to, to speak into my life and held me accountable? Uh, m- man, maybe if I was in a better community group, or maybe if I just got in a community group. 
Those things will not make you fruitful. Are they good things? Absolutely. Should you do them? Absolutely. But they cannot change you. So why don't we grow? Look at verse 9. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind. Now, catch this for a minute. There's a contradiction here that's intentional. There's both sight and blindness in the same person. Did you catch that? Look. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted, he is blind. Well, how can you be able to see and blind at the same time? What is, what is Peter saying here? What would it be, feel like to be so nearsighted that you're blind? Think of this imagery for a minute. At the very least, what it would mean is you can't see very far. And if you're so nearsighted and you can see near to you and you can't see anywhere else, what are you able to see? You're only able to see yourself. This is, if we could put it this way, Peter's description of a navel gazer. In other words, what Peter is giving you here is a powerful image of self-absorption. You were so nearsighted you were blind. That's the power of self-absorption because you think you can really see. But here's the problem. What you can see is only you. And it's so all-consuming because you can't see anything else that you're self-deceived into thinking you actually see things clearly when the scriptures say you can't see at all because all you can see is yourself. Why don't we grow? Because we become near, so nearsighted we're blind. But then what else? What happens when this is the case? These qualities, we lack them because we become no seer, so nearsighted that he is blind. Why? Having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Why do we become nearsighted and blind? Peter says it's because you have forgotten the gospel. You have forgotten the cross of Jesus. That he shed his innocent blood to cleanse you to forgive you, to set you free from the guilt and power of sin, to give you a hope that nothing in this life can take from you. So when he says here, having forgotten the gospel, what does he mean by forgotten? Does it mean like, wow, my memory has been swept clean, it's blank, I literally have no idea what the word gospel means, who Jesus is, or what he did. Like, I just, I have no concept at all. That's not what he means. He's talking to Christians here. What he's saying is that the gospel has been displaced in your life. You have forgotten it, what it means for you, who you now are. Why? Because you've become nearsighted and blind. You have now taken center stage in your life. That's why we don't grow. That's always why we don't grow. Because we forget the gospel. So then what is the key to fruitfulness? 
It is remembering the gospel. Remembering the gospel. Very simple. Not complicated. But oh so hard. Now, let's keep thinking. What's then the hope of this? What's the hope of this fruitfulness? Why should we try to grow in fruitfulness? And the simple answer that we get from verses 10 and 11 is because it's worth it. Why should you make every effort to grow? Why should you, as Peter says in verse 10, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election? Talk about that in a moment. Simply put, because it's worth it. Why is it worth it? He gives us two reasons here. Verse 10, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these things, these qualities, you will never fall. Do you hear that promise? You will never fall. Why is it worth it? Because there's present stability. Making every effort is how you don't trip and fall on your face. Perhaps some of you here and and, and your marriage is struggling and you feel like you're falling. Here's a promise for you. You will never fall. If you're here and you're wondering, I don't know if this is true, I don't know if I can make it. Here is a word of hope to you. Why should you try? Because you will never fall. But second, there's future enjoyment. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is not all there's going to be. There is a wedding supper of the Lamb, a new heavens and a new earth, a new city, a whole new world, where all of the things that wreak havoc in your lives won't be there anymore. There will be no more tears. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more sin. There will be future enjoyment, an eternal kingdom, a kingdom that can't be shaken. Think about that. Let me put it in this term. How many of us sort of by default think the United States is going to be here forever? Well, it won't be. If Rome isn't here forever, I'm sure that we won't be here forever. But here is an eternal kingdom. And a kingdom that will never end. What is the hope of fruitfulness? It's present stability and future enjoyment. Now let me get you to think for a moment as we come to a close. Why should you, why would you want to make your calling and your election sure? What does he mean by those words, calling and election? Simply put, how do you know that you belong to God? See, Peter, when he says calling and election, what he's really describing is God's sovereign grace in your life. Why should you want to make that sure? How would you do that? Well, I was trying to think of how to illustrate this for you, and many of you know that... um, I've played golf my whole life and Ryder Cup is this weekend and I thought, man, 
what if I all of a sudden had the ability of Tiger Woods? And then I said, you know, but I just, I just don't want to do, I just don't want to play golf anymore. Um, I think that's what we do to the gospel all the time. Or what if you're a Steph Curry fan and, and he can shoot better than anybody and you all of a sudden had that ability and you chose not to use it? That would be stupid. You'd be missing out on some serious money. Uh, you just, it's unthinkable that if you were to somehow come into that kind of competence, that kind of power, that kind of ability and skill to not use it. And that's why we should want to grow. Because what the gospel tells you is that you now have in your possession through faith all the ability and power of Jesus coursing through you. Why would you not want to use that? And to become the man or woman that God has called you and made you to be. See, that's the insanity of sin. Is that we hear that and we think, well, all right. But if you had the ability of Tiger Woods or Steph Curry or Yo-Yo Ma, if you know who that is, and you didn't use it, people would look at you like you're crazy. Why wouldn't you want to do that? And that's my question to each of us. If this is really true, why wouldn't we want to grow and be, faith and be fruitful in our own lives and as a community? And as I say that, I, I anticipate each of us thinking, oh man, all right, this is overwhelming. You've listed four goals. That seems really overwhelming. I thought the Christian life was one of rest and, and peace and comfort. And I would tell to you, say, here is the, the irony of Christianity. It is a restless resting. A restless resting. And so I wanted to spend this time looking at these four goals, these basic directions of the Christian life, to help us to think about what does it look like for us to be fruitful as a congregation? Connecting people to God, to one another, to the city, to the culture. But even more than that, I want you to remember how is that possible? And this brings us back to the very beginning, to our very first core value of gospel centrality. How do we do this? By remembering the gospel. What's that look like? By abiding in Jesus. We cannot grow if we are not rooted in the vine. If his life and his power and his spirit are not at work. And he has promised that when we trust in him, we are connected to him. And we will bear fruit because we are in him. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we reflect on this passage and, and what you have called us to do and uh, the promises and blessings you've, you've given us, we ask that you would help us by grace to make every effort to grow, to add to our faith the things that are listed here that we might truly love as we have been loved. And Father, we ask that you would help us to remember Jesus.
And not just in some sort of list of, of doctrines or pieces of information, but that we would remember him in what we think and what we say, that we would commune with him, that we would lean on him, that we would rest in him, that we would turn to him and ask for help, and that we would give you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all the glory. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.